Matthew chapter 13, we've been discussing, we've been discussing the Word of God, really. We've, and more specifically, we've been talking about the Word made flesh, which is who? Jesus. Jesus is the Word made flesh. And we've been talking about all the power that's resident inside the seed of the Word of God. And in this parable, the sower sows the Word. Jesus said the, the, the sower, he, he said those words exactly, the sower sows the Word. The seed was the Word. And what do we know about seeds? Whatever it is they ultimately produce is already resident inside them. The, the, the giant tree that you may have in your front yard started as a seed. And everything that you see on the outside was first resident on the inside. Every bit of it. All of it was in the seed. That's a miracle. That is a miracle. And Peter said that we are born again, not of corruptible seed, but of incorruptible seed, which is the Word of God. He just echoed what he heard Jesus say. That's a good thing to do, by the way. Just say what you hear Jesus say. Amen? And that's what Peter was saying, that we're born again. We are recreated. And there was a seed planted on the inside of you. And it's important to notice this. It's not corruptible seed. In other words, there is nothing wrong with that seed. Amen? Amen? There are no spiritual birth defects. Are there? You are born again, just as Sarah ministered to us tonight. You are born again into perfection. Man, if we ever got a hold of that. If we ever really got a glimpse of perfection. That's what I love about praise and worship. Especially praise and worship in, with songs that are based directly on Scripture. Not, not just songs that, that come from the praise and worship word bank, so to speak. Well, let's see, I'll take a holy and I'll, I'll take a I love you and an I worship you and we'll make a song out of it. Those are good things, but again, they're meaningless if they're tradition. The only power in them is when they're revelation. The Lord put it to me like this. It's only revelation, or excuse me, it only works when it's revelation, and it's only revelation if you got it from the revealer. You cannot separate revelation and revealer and have it work. And that's why Christians are failing to receive. They heard a good word. They heard a good message. They heard revelation, but they separated the revelation from the revealer, and they said, I'm going to do what preacher so-and-so did. Right then and there, it became tradition. Right then. And that's why two people can sit in the same service, one get their life completely, radically, dramatically changed, and one goes in and out the whole time. Heard the same words, sang the same songs, but... For one, it was tradition. For one, it was revelation. One valued it. One honored it. And one said, I've heard this before. But I started to say, this is what I really appreciate about praise and worship. Scriptural, biblical praise and worship. None of this, I'm unworthy stuff. None of this, I'm so full of junk. I'm so full of sin. I, I can't, I don't have time for that. Give me the word in worship. And you know who I learned that from? That woman sitting right there. When she came in, into my life and she started playing the songs that she had written, I thought, what have I been singing? What? And I was a youth pastor at the time, and I, we completely revamped everything we sang in that youth group. 
Why? Because it's so easy to slide over into this desperation kind of thing. I'm lost. I'm broken. All of these kinds of things. And it, it, it's like people would say, well, are you telling me you're not lost without him? No, I'm not saying that. I am lost without him. But, folks, I'm not without him. I am. Oh, I'm broken without you. Yeah, you are, but you're not without him. Jesus said, lo, whatever that means, I am with you always. What does it mean? <laughs> Maybe it means look. Maybe it's short for look. You know how we shorten words sometimes. Maybe Jesus is like, lo, look at this. Lo, bro, check it out. I'm with you. That's what I love about that kind of praise and worship, because when you give voice in, in an atmosphere like that, and, and it's a beautiful thing to watch a congregation worship, because there are people that will truly get lost in it. Now, none of this, none of this painful, I'm in pain kind of worship. <laughs> You know what I mean? The, mm, the face is like, oh, oh. It's like, if it hurts that bad, stop it. <laughs> you know? It's like telling the doctor, it hurts when I do this. Then stop doing that. And that's how people worship, just in pain. Oh, God, oh. Sarah taught me that there should be a note and a tone of joy and victory in every song we sing. Now, the songs that the Lord gives her, many of them, most of them, are, are, are slow, they're sweet, they're soft, but you go listen to any one of them, and there's a tone of victory in every one of them. I'm not telling you we've got to do these songs all day. You know, those are great, those are fun, but just watch, watch for the spirit of it. Watch for the spirit of it, because when you give voice to that, in that moment in time, you're not giving voice to anything else, and there's perfected praise coming out of you perfected praise coming out of you. So don't ever again think, oh, I could never be perfect. When that thought comes, you know what you should stop and do? Worship. And for as long as you're standing there worshiping, you're perfect. You are demonstrating the perfection that's in you. Amen? That's the seed that got planted in you. The incorruptible, ever-living, undying seed of the Word of God. But we know that about the Word. We know what it's capable of. We know that it's, it's alive. It's sharper than any two-edged sword. It's powerful. It's got the ability to divide us under the soul, the spirit, the joints, and the marrow. A discerner of the thoughts and the intents of the heart. We know that that's in the Word. We even know that God exalted His Word above His own name. We know that His Word is forever settled in heaven. We know these things about the Word. Then tell me why it's not producing in our lives like it should. That's a tough question, but one we must ask. And Jesus went through case after case here. And He said, the, the picture He painted, He said, Behold, or look at this, or lo, a sower went out to sow. As he sowed, some seed fell by the wayside, the birds came and devoured it. Some fell on stony places, did not have much earth, they immediately sprang up because they had no depth of earth. When the sun was up, they were scorched, and because they had no root, they withered away. Some fell among thorns, and the thorns sprang up and choked them, but other seed, other of the same kind of seed. And you already know that the seed is the word. So you've got seed that fell on four kinds of ground, and with all the power that's in it, everything that it's able, able to do and capable of, it fell on four kinds of ground and only reproduced once. You've got to find out why. 
Because God's not satisfied with it, and don't you dare be satisfied with it. I am, as a minister, as, a, as, as an individual called into the ministry, I am not satisfied with just getting to stand behind a pulpit, a, a pulpit and preach. I'm not satisfied with that alone. What satisfies me is when the word goes out, takes root, and causes effect. That is satisfying. Now, what's frustrating is that I can't do it for you. I can't. God can't do it for you. Don't you know if he could, that he would? But he can't. He chose to limit himself to your faith. He chose to limit his ability to your level of honor, your level of value. For his word. Because that puts you and him in conversation. That's love. That's fellowship. That puts you in the conversation between grace and faith. Our lives are a conversation between grace and faith. Grace and faith. Don't ever fall into this thing where, where you... And I've heard this said and I just... You ever found it hard not to slap someone? You just put your hands in your pockets. It'll help you. But you watch somebody talk about certain preachers, and particularly in our, our faith circles, I've seen this before, where someone will say, well, you know, he's really more of a, a grace preacher. Well, I didn't say anything bad about him. Yeah, your face did, though. You got to watch out for that. Your face communicates. Just as the face of God communicates, the face of you communicates. It shows us what you think. He's really more of a, a grace preacher. Well, what are you? If you're not preaching grace, then you're wasting your time and mine. He's really more of a grace preacher. What does that even mean? You got other people that just say, oh, that's just that word of faith stuff. Word of faith. And they define that by a group of ministers. That's their definition of word of faith, as opposed to going to the book of Romans chapter 10 that says the word is nigh you, even in your mouth, the word of faith that we preach. There's your definition of the word of faith. But don't ever get caught in the middle of that thing. Oh, do we need more grace teaching? Do we need more faith preaching? Do we need more grace teaching? What's, what's more important, grace or faith? They are inoperative without each other. They are both useless without each other. It's a conversation between grace and faith. Grace is God saying, I love you. And faith is you saying, thank you. Thank you. I receive that. Faith is not you saying, oh Lord, but how, but why? How could you love an old wretched sinner like me? How could you, how could you? No, faith just says, thank you. But doesn't he know what I've done wrong? Yeah. And you know what his response to it was? I love you. I love you. Because it's only that love that will pull you up out of what you've been in and set you up where he is. Grace says you're healed. Faith says, I don't feel healed. Is that what faith says? No. Faith says, thank you. I receive that. Thanksgiving is the language of faith. Man, I'm just quoting you all night, aren't I? I learned that from Sarah too. Thanksgiving is the language of faith. Say that. Thanksgiving is the language of faith. So grace and faith 
are inoperative without each other. John chapter 1 tells us that grace and truth, how did it come? It came through Jesus. Romans chapter 1, I believe, tells us the same thing. Grace came through Jesus. But don't limit your understanding to this, that grace is something that came through Jesus. Grace is not something that came through Jesus. Grace is everything that came through Jesus. It's not just something, it's everything. Grace is everything that came through Him. And then when you go back to the Word and you start seeing things that talk about what came to you through Jesus, the light should come on. You should say, Grace, found it, found grace. I found grace, it's right here. My God always causes me to triumph through Jesus. He is always leading me to victory through Christ Jesus. Over and over and over. That is what came through Him. But how can it come through you or through Him to you? It can only make its way through Him to you by your faith in Him. So change your language about this. Instead of, instead of all these things that you have faith for, have you ever said that? Well, I've got my faith out there for a car. I've got my faith out there for my house or for my healing or, or for my children or faith for, faith for, faith for. Replace that with faith in. Because there is no faith for healing without faith in the healer. It, it doesn't exist. If you're trying to have faith for healing then you've tried to separate revelation from revealer, and it doesn't work. It becomes tradition. Faith in the healer. Now, why did I say all that? Seriously, I have no idea. I'm, wanting, I'm hoping you know, because I, <laughs> I don't know why in the world I said all that. Okay, Matthew chapter 13. You thought I was going somewhere. Matthew chapter 13. So we've seen all the kinds of ground that the word got sown on. And we must take our place in the conversation between grace and faith if we're going to receive everything that grace has given. God, who is love, gave you Jesus, who is grace. And you put your faith in him and he became your hope. You got them all working together. So we, let, let's just go ahead and skip to verse 18. And if you haven't been in these services, well, then just, just get a hold of them and, and get yourself caught up. If we, if we tried to go over it all, we'd be here all night. But verse 18, Jesus then begins to explain what he just said. And he said, therefore, hear the parable of the sower. They all heard it, but none of them heard it. They all heard the words, but the words didn't get in them. And again, it's like you sitting down or me sitting down watching the Spanish channel. Remember we talked about that? I don't speak Spanish. It's not going to help me understand it just to turn it up. <laughs> right? I know what we'll do. We'll put, we'll put Spanish subtitles on. That's not going to help me either. <laughs> right? I can hear it. The problem isn't the noise coming in. The problem is my understanding of it. Right? And that's what Jesus is saying. The problem isn't you hearing. It's what you're doing with what you heard. Don't be a hearer of the word, only be a doer of the word. So it says, now, therefore, hear the parable of the sower. When anyone hears the word of the kingdom and does not understand it, then the wicked one comes and snatches away the word that was sown in his heart. This is he who received seed by the wayside. When you don't understand the value of the word, then it can be robbed from you. And it won't produce from, for you if it's been robbed from you. Begin to value the word. Give the word final authority in your life. Give the word 
final authority in your life. This is how I like to say it. God, you have the first word and the last word and every word in between. Every word in between. Give the word first place and final authority in your life. That is when you know you are properly esteeming the word of God. And he said, those who honor me, I will honor. Now, isn't that an interesting statement? Those who honor me, I will honor. We, we can do, there's so much that we can do to honor the Lord. It's, it's, we can do it. The scripture talks about uh, bringing an offering before him, giving him the honor that's due his name. That's the one way we can do it. We honor him uh, with our time. I mean, you, you honor him with your presence tonight. Every single one of you had an option of what you did tonight, and you chose to sit under the word of God. You're honoring him. You are honoring him. But check this out. He said, I'll honor you. Now, when you've been honored by God, you know it. <laughs> there is no wondering, was I just honored by God? No, you know that you've been honored by God because it's big. It's overwhelming. He said, with long life, I will honor him and show him my salvation. But what was the verse before that? Because he has set his love upon me, he honored me. He gave me room to move in his life. And if the Lord sees an inch, he'll take a mile. <laughs> he'll honor you with long life. And when you've been honored by God, you know it. You feel it. It's all over you. You, f you feel it in your hair. You feel it all. Man, I've been honored by God. That's how Sarah and I feel being in your presence this weekend. We feel honored by God. To be here in a place where the word is so valued. Praise the Lord. He said, I would honor those who honor me. And that's what Jesus was talking about. When you don't value the word properly, it gets robbed from you. Verse 20. He who receives seed on stony places, this is he who receives the word and immediately receives it with joy. Yes, amen, pastor. Yes, that's a good word, pastor. I believe it. Shoo. Shoo. Whew. Sarah and I were in a meeting some months ago. We've been in a lot of church services. I was born and raised in the church. And I've been in a lot of church services. I've heard a lot of amens. I've heard a lot of, yeah, that's good. I've heard a lot of bring it. <laughs> even, heard, even heard some say that's. Oh, say that, say that. Which always kind of confused me. It's like, he just did. <laughs> you know? I, well, that's the one I was going to talk about. We sat in a service not very long ago, and this woman behind us kept going, oh, that's delicious. That is tasty. Oh, that, mm, 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 that's delicious. That's delicious. And Sarah and I kept bumping each other. That's delicious. That's delicious. And we kind of laughed at it, but taste and see, I guess. The Lord is good. That's delicious. But you know what? You can sit in that little brown chair, and that's delicious, your pastor, all night long. But what are you doing with it when you get outside here? Because it's wonderful, and because of the atmosphere in this church, it's easy to receive, and it's easy to have joy over it. Joy comes, we established this this morning, when you see something. When you see down the road, see, happiness and joy are different. And you know that. You've, heard, you've probably heard that said before. But happiness has to deal with the, the good condition that you're living in right now. 
That's happiness, right? But joy can be present even when the conditions aren't favorable. Why? Because you see the good condition coming. I would have fainted if I hadn't believed to see the goodness of the Lord in the land of the living. It sustained him from the trial that he was in all the way to the goal, all the way to the finish line, and he came out stronger than he was before. That's, the, that's what happens in the midst of these trials. How on earth do we go through trials, various, random, where on earth did this come from kind of trial with joy? How do you do that? By getting your eyes off the trial and on to what's coming. He said, count it all joy, knowing that the testing of your faith produces something in you. Patience. It produces, uh, he said, let patience have its perfect work, that you would be perfect. Complete. That word perfect doesn't mean faultless. It means mature. It means grown up. That's the biggest difference between believers. You, you, you don't have... Uh, you have believers, who you, some that are mature and some that aren't. It's not the age. Maturity is not a number. You recognize that, right? It's not an age number. And there are, of course, there are certain things that you only learn through the course of time and that only time on the earth can teach you if you're willing to learn. But there's a maturity that's either present or not present. And Paul wrote in Ephesians 4, and he said that we would no longer be children tossed to and fro with every wind of doctrine. What do we know about kids? They will believe anything you tell them. That's why you got whole generations of younger brothers that thought they were adopted. <laughs> right? Because they had an older brother that said, don't tell mom I told you, but you're adopted. Actually, we just found you. You're not, you're not our real family. Nuh-uh, yeah, uh-uh, yeah, really? And a child will believe anything they're told. And he said, don't be that way when it comes to doctrine. Go to the Word, find the answer, and stick to it. And don't let other men's opinions sway you this way and other man's opinions sway you this way. Well, so-and-so says this about it. Well, so-and-so says this about it. I wonder what it really... Go to the Word, find out what He said, and stick to that. That's maturity. It takes maturity to do that, doesn't it? Now, why did I tell you that? I have no idea. Okay. Thank you, Lord. I guess I'm just... Did somebody say that's delicious? Receive the word with joy, with joy. But you know what? It requires maturity to stay in joy. That's why I told you that. I'm, I'm just sure of it. <laughs> to stay in joy, to endure in joy. Man, that requires some maturity. Have you ever noticed how easily distracted children are? You ever noticed that before? You should stand up here sometime and watch how easily distracted some adults are. It's true. There's a famous story in my family. When I was a little kid, I was sitting at the dinner table at a restaurant, and I was sitting there with, with uh, my grandmother, and um, I was evidently playing with a hard-boiled egg, and I was doing this all around the table, pretending it was a boat, and my grandmother turned to me and said, now, Jeremy, you are a big boy, and big boys do not play at the table. Now, you listen to me. It is not good to play with your food. We don't sit here and play with our food. And evidently, I got quite a lecture. I don't remember this, but the story lives. So, uh, you know, it gets told every now and then. It was quite a lecture on not playing with the food. 
over and over. We do not play with our food. Big boys do not play with our food. She gets to the end of it. I look at her and say, want to ride in my boat? (laughs) 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 Missed everything she said. (laughs) For what? A hard-boiled egg. More focused on that than her. And you know what? We laugh. Those little kids, aren't they cute? That's funny. But I just can't see God laughing at you and I when he's done everything he can to get his word across to us, to to give us instruction, to give us direction over and over and over, and we've been distracted and pulled off this way and pulled off that way. I don't think he stands here and goes, oh, isn't that cute? (laughs) Why? Because it's time to put that stuff away. Paul said, when I was a child, I spoke, thought, understood as a child, but when I became a man, what did he say? Did he say, I grew out of childish things? No, he said, I put them away. Those kinds of things have to be put away. You don't grow out of that. You don't grow out of being easily distracted. That, that's what this life is all about. That's what this world is all about. Look at me, look at me, look at me. Things vying for your time, begging for your attention. And unless you learn to put that away, right? Amen? There's more we could say about that. But, that. but what I'm telling you is that it requires maturity to endure in this life. And that's what Jesus was talking about. And he was talking about enduring. And your root is how much God loves you. And if you have a root in how much you're loved, then you'll know that I'm going to make it. How can you be so sure you're going to make it? Because I'm loved. He wouldn't let me down. He wouldn't let me fail. He never has. He never will. He loves me. He loves me. He loves me. He loves me. And that'll keep you enduring and enduring, and enduring. And the great thing about endurance is once you've made it so far, that's, that's just where you start the next time. And I think God is looking for people that He can take on a very long journey. That, that thought's been hitting me recently about this ministry that Sarah and I are in. This is for the rest of our lives. And we're, such, we're in such a society that's quick to move from one thing to another But we are locked into something here for the rest of our lives. That's why I'm not in a hurry. That is why I'm not in a hurry. And I'm disciplining my flesh to not be in a hurry. Not thinking that it's got to be on this level right now. No, let the Lord do it. Let Him build it. Let Him develop the character that it takes all along the way. He's good. He won't put you in a place that your character can't handle. As a matter of fact, that's probably what He's waiting on. To come to a place where our character is mature enough for him to give us some things that he wants to give us. Because when we're ready for it, then he'll put you there. You take that step up and step up. Requires maturity. All these things are in these few verses. Praise God. Look at verse 22. This is where I want to go tonight. Jesus said, Now he who received seed among the thorns... Somebody say thorns is he who hears the word and the cares of this world and the deceitfulness of riches. Now Mark chapter 4 adds this, the desire or lust for other things. He said, the cares of this world, the deceitfulness of riches, the desire for other things, choke the word. Mark 4 says when they enter in, they choke the word and it becomes 
unfruitful. So again, nothing wrong with the seed. It had the ability to be fruitful. But these thorns choked it and it became unfruitful. The word that had the ability to produce lost its ability to produce in your life. Why? Because it got choked. It got suffocated by what? Jesus named three things. And we'll spend just a few minutes on each one of these. Number one, he said, the cares of this world. The cares of this world. You know how I would say that to you? This is how we would, we would vocalize the cares of this world. What am I going to do? What am I going to do? Situations arise in life, in your family, in your household, on the job, and it's pressure. And oftentimes the first thought and the first words are, what am I going to do? What are we going to do? What are we going to do about this? How am I going to handle this? How am I going to get through this? What am I going to do about this? What am I going to do about him, about her, about the kids, about the job, about the paycheck, about the bills? What am I going to do? What am I going to do? Can you hear the repetition in that? How many times have we been guilty of saying, what am I going to do? Jesus said that the cares of this world and the deceitfulness of riches. You know how I would say that? I have to make a living. You got to make a living. You, you just, you got to make a living. You just have to make a living. I have got to get out there and make a living. I got to make a li- I got to make some money. I got to make some money. What am I going to do so that I can make some money? And he called it the deceitfulness of riches. And I'll tell you something. I think that there are more poor people deceived by riches than there are wealthy people. Why? Because wealthy people have already found out that money can't make them happy. They already found it out. And they're either left questioning now, okay, what can make me happy? Or they've already found Jesus. And now they're rich in every area of life. Right? But there are poor people. There are people who lack. Or there are people who see themselves as though they lack, even though they have so much. You know, you and I have so much. We've had just a couple opportunities to see some things around the world. Sarah and I have ministered in South Africa, had some great ministry there. But man, we we saw some people living in conditions. It was the kind of Africa that you see on TV, you know? And, And until you get up there close to it, it's hard to really believe that it exists. But I'm going to tell you something. As we were driving into that township called Mamalodi in South Africa, and I saw the abject poverty that these people were living in, things that your mind just can't really wrap around, that there are children born into it, that grow up in it, and they live and die in those conditions. And it's as far as your eye can see. People that have made houses out of whatever scraps they can find. Just a few feet by a few feet. And of course, there's neighborhoods even within that. And you've got small shacks and a little bigger shacks. And you've even got people that have built some fairly decent houses. But it's as far as your eye can see. And we were driving into that, and you just see people doing life at that level. It changes your perspective. Don't you think sometimes we just need a little perspective? Amen? And we got in there, and as we're driving in there, I, I was nervous. I said, Lord, what am I going to say to these people? 
What do I have to say to them? And I couldn't, th- I, didn't, I couldn't think of what I should say. I couldn't think of how to be relevant. How do I be relevant to them? And finally, I asked the Lord, I said, show me how you feel about them. And as soon as I said that, I heard these words on the inside. Not an audible voice, but on the inside. He said, Jeremy, you couldn't take it. He said, Jeremy, you couldn't take it. He loves them that much. And I said, well, just give me a glimpse. Just give me a glimpse. And all this is going on in the car as we pull up to this place. And we get out and we start going into this building (laughs) that's just some old, dilapidated, rundown place. And we walk in and I'm like, Sarah, stay close. (laughs) (laughs) And and she and I and our two friends that traveled with us uh, were the only four white faces in that room. And we stuck out, man. But we walked in to thick presence of God. Oh, you remember that? How thick that was? We walked in and there was, there was a guy on the stage playing, a, playing bass and another guy, another guy playing drums. And I think maybe on, somebody on a keyboard and a guy singing. I have no idea what they were saying because it was in God knows what language, but I knew they were praising him. Now, isn't that interesting? That not only did I hear it, but even though I couldn't understand the words themselves, I understood what they were doing. They were praising. They were worshiping. And the high praises of God filled that place. You want to know what I preach to them? The very same thing I'm getting ready to preach to you. Go to Matthew chapter 6. Jesus said, the cares of this world, the deceitfulness of riches, and the desire or the lust for other things. What am I going to do? How am I going to make a living? The desire for other things. What can I do to have that? I'll do anything to get my hands on that. That's how we would say these things. Matthew chapter 6. This is what the Lord said to say to those people, and I'm going to say the same thing to you. Look at verse 7. Thank you, Lord. Jesus said, when you pray... Do not use vain repetitions as the heathen do, for they think that they will be heard for their many words. To me, that's like a child standing there going, Daddy, 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 Mommy, 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 Mother, Mommy, thinking that if they just say that enough, you're finally going to turn around and say, What? What can I give you to shut you up? And he said the heathen pray that way. They think if they just say it long enough that they're going to finally bug their God into giving them what they want. Or bug God himself. People praying to God himself, the real God, thinking that's the way to approach him. He said, don't do that. He said, verse 8, Therefore do not be like them, for your Father knows the things you have need of before you ever ask him. Before you ever ask him, he knows what you have need of. Amen? Then he goes on and says in verse 9, In this manner, therefore, pray. And he begins with these words, Our Father in heaven. Now, if I were to ask you what this prayer was called, how would you answer me? Say it out loud. The Lord's Prayer. The Lord talked to me about that the other day, and he said, you know, that's not my favorite title for this. You don't see that in here, that this is the Lord's Prayer. He said, when you pray, you pray this way. So why don't we call it our prayer? 
The prayer the Lord showed us. The prayer the Lord gave us. This is our prayer. And I think, honestly, that's the disconnect for people. That that's the Lord's prayer. Yeah. We, we pray that that was the Lord's prayer. Jesus could pray that because that was his prayer. Failing to realize that he said, you pray this way. You say these words. Now, if Jesus said that, we already established, that, established this, that Jesus only said what he heard the Father say. We've established that Jesus is the visible image of the invisible God, right? He is the very likeness and the very image of God. And his whole purpose in this earth and in his ministry was to reveal the Father. And it finally came to the point where he said, hey, if you've seen me, you've seen him. Why? Because his words revealed the Father's will. People who question and puzzle, is it God's will, God's will to heal? What did Jesus do? Did he heal or did he make sick? He healed, right? That's the will of God. What did Jesus do? Did he bless or did he curse? He blessed. That's the will of God. That's how you know that. You look at Jesus. So whatever it is Jesus is about to say, he's saying pray this way. Not you got to change the way you think about prayer. It's not you endeavoring to convince God or inform God. That's not it at all. The most powerful prayer is the prayer that you pray knowing His will. Knowing it. You pray... If you'll spend more time praying God's will than you do trying to reveal yours, your prayer will be more effective. Get over into where His will is for you to pray. I, Sarah and I have seen this at work in our life on more than one occasion. As a matter of fact, two weeks ago, we had a need come up in our very young ministry, and we said, okay, what are we going to pay for this? And the Lord spoke to her, and He spoke to me, and He said the same thing, and He said $4,000. And we, we needed it. Uh, for an event that, that, was, that was coming up that week. And so what did we do? We heard from the Lord. He said 4,000. We came together and we came into agreement. A husband and a wife in agreement. Try to stop that. Try to stop the power of agreement between a husband and a wife. That's big. That's strong. But so is disagreement between a husband and a wife. That's strong. In the wrong direction. So we came into agreement and said, Lord, we believe it's your will that Sarah and I have $4,000 to pay this and to meet this need. We've heard from you. And now, Lord, we give you, these were our words, we give you opportunity to demonstrate yourself. Okay? That was on a Sunday night. It was a Saturday or Sunday night. Tuesday, the following Tuesday, we were out together and we went to our ministry post office box and there were a couple envelopes in the post office, and I pulled them out. She's sitting in the car on the phone with her mom. I opened one of them, and I looked at it, and I went, <gasps> <gasps> and Sarah said, what? And I said, it's $4,000. There was a check in our mailbox for $4,000. Not $3,999, not $3,999, $4,000. And somebody would say, well, you should have asked him for five. No, he said four. Yeah. That's where we get all screwed up about faith. Yeah. You just start picking stuff. Yeah. Hear what he wants you to have, then ask him for that. Yeah. Hear what his will is, and then that's the, that's the only way you can have faith. 
is when you know what his will is, right? And it was the next day that I was preparing to minister, and I came to Matthew chapter 6 to preach on this prayer, and I looked up in the verse before it, and Jesus said, your father knows you have need of, uh, knows the things you have need of before you ask him. The postmark on that envelope was Friday, like two days before we even prayed. And I went before the Lord on that. I said, so, so explain this to me. Is it, is it our faith in you that did this? Or, I mean, it was already there the whole time. And he said, you're exactly right. He said, Jeremy, you already had it. It was already yours. Oh, I was like, oh, that's good, God. That'll preach. It was already yours. He knew what you had need of before you ever asked him. And he said, you got the rich pleasure of hearing my voice, putting faith in what I told you, receiving the need met, and finding out that I was on it before you ever even asked me. That was awesome to me. That was awesome to me. Now, what if, what if we had said, we received $10,000 in Jesus' name, just picking numbers out of the air. We would have got a check for four and said, well, it almost worked. But we would have been out trying to reveal our will to God yeah. instead of just hearing His and going with that. Yeah. You see what I'm saying? Yeah. Okay. He knows what you have need of. So Jesus is getting ready in this prayer. He is telling you, pray this way. In other words, He's saying, pray this because this is God's will. Pray this way because you'll be in the will of God as you pray this. How many of you believe Jesus gets His prayers answered? Yes. Yeah? Probably, you'd say. I'd bet on it. Pray this way. And he said, our Father in heaven. There's so much in that statement. Did he say, my Father in heaven? No, he said, our Father. Our Father. And in one statement, he lifted you up from where you were and pulled you up to his level of sonship. He did that. People get so upset at preachers who preach this kind of stuff and say, you just put yourself on God's level. No, I don't. He put me there. He told me to sit down next to him. I would not be so bold as to do that had I not heard him say it, had I not seen it in his word. If you try to do something with God that you don't see in his word, that's arrogance. But if you do it because it's in his word, then it's boldness of faith. It's confidence. He pulled, just with that one statement, he pulled you up from where you were, sat you down on his level, and said, pray like this, Our Father, hallowed be your name. So he pulled you into a place of sonship, and then he taught you how to worship. Worship the Father. Just worship Him. Or we might say, honor Him. Value Him. Honor Him, because when you do, He'll honor you. And then he said this, Your kingdom come, your will be done, on earth as it is in heaven. So what's Jesus doing? He's revealing to us that God has a desire here to invade our kingdom with His kingdom. Yeah. Yeah. Now get a hold of this. We could spend days and weeks talking about just the kingdom of God. It was huge to Jesus. That's what He preached everywhere. The kingdom, the kingdom, the kingdom, the kingdom. And this is a personal invitation. And it's what God needs and it's what God requires. God, your kingdom come. 
We invite as men of this kingdom, as men and women of this realm who've been given authority in this, in this realm, we yield our authority to yours. Your kingdom come, your will be done out on earth as it is in heaven. Now just, just go wild with your imagination about the kingdom of God. What happens when one kingdom invades another kingdom and overthrows and overtakes another kingdom? It's not polite. It's not gentle. It doesn't start with a friendly phone call from one king to another king saying, Hey, we're going to be there tomorrow at midnight. It's abrasive. It's violent. It's quick. And what happens is one kingdom moves in and overthrows. And right then and there begins a new government, new leadership, New rulers, new rules, new, uh, new language, new culture. You see this all over the place. You get up a, a little more north and east here in, in certain parts of the country, and what do you see? Even in, I believe even in Ohio, you see strong uh, Italian communities, right? Yeah. Why, why is that? Because somebody a long time ago that had an, a vowel at the end of their name, <laughs> moved into that area and just started living there and just started creating culture there. And the culture that they came from began to invade that culture. And now you got little pockets in parts of the country, little Italy, little Mexico, little China, right? Go to New York and you see them all at once. <laughs> You can be in little, in little Italy and cross the street and be in Chinatown. Why? Because that culture is what's present there, and this other culture is what's present here. And the language changes, and the customs change, and even the way you speak to each other, the communication changes. That's the biggest thing to me. The language changes. When one kingdom overthrows another kingdom, it changes the way of communication. And we are literally saying to God, invade our kingdom with your kingdom. Your kingdom come and the atmosphere of heaven be the atmosphere here on earth. And I am prompted to, to ask you this tonight. Is there cancer in heaven? No, there is not. And if there's cancer in your body or in the body of a loved one, this is what you should meditate on right here. Your kingdom, God, your kingdom come. Your cancer-free kingdom come to my earth and to my kingdom and overthrow, overtake, overrun. Light, or excuse me, darkness, the kingdom of darkness bows its knee in a hurry to the kingdom of light. You walk into a dark room and you flip that switch. Does darkness hang around for a little bit with an attitude? Fine, I'll leave. No, it's gone immediately. Immediately. It has to leave. Light overthrows it. Amen. And that's what Jesus is inviting him to do. Invade our kingdom. It's an invitation to an invasion. But God needs representatives, men and women on earth, who've been given authority in this realm to yield their authority to his authority so that we can reign in life with him. That's a kingdom word, reign. You look at Romans chapter 5 and you find that sin came through Adam and death through sin. And by that sin, death reigned. 
So there was a new kingdom that set up. But how much more? Grace that came through Jesus. And he said the, the righteous gift, the gift is, is not like the offense. Just go study it sometime. We don't have time to get into it tonight. But he talks about how the grace that came through him, available to all, and it's so much bigger, and it's so much more, and where sin abounded there, did grace much more abound? And through him we reign in this life. His kingdom come, his will be done. And Jesus is revealing how to pray. Prioritize your prayer. And I said all that to get you right here. What's the next thing he said? Give us this day our daily bread. Jesus just revealed to you the will of God to meet your need. Don't be confused about it anymore. Would Jesus have told you to pray that if God wasn't willing to do it? No, he would not. He said, pray this because it's the will of God. Give us this day our daily bread. So... Instead of the thorns, the cares of this world, what am I going to do? You thought we'd never come back to that, did you? What am I going to do? How am I going to make a living? What can I do to have that? Cares of this world, deceitfulness of riches, lust, and desire for other things. Instead of, instead of having that mindset that chokes the word, have this one. Give us this day our daily bread. And pray in confidence and faith that you've just prayed the will of God and he's quick to perform his word. Amen. We could go through this whole prayer, but I want you to skip over now to verse 25. And this is what I preached to that church in Africa. So full and so on fire, so excited about the word. I said to them, therefore I say to you, do not worry. This is what Jesus said. Do not worry about your life. You know, it's the verse before this that said, you can't serve God and money. That's the deceitfulness of riches, serving money. And then he said, stop worrying about your life. Those words do not better translate to stop. Stop worrying about your life. Isn't that interesting that God would take me into the middle of abject poverty and I would think to myself, oh, just, just preach something that, that we could all just you know, agree on <laughs> and get me out of here because I don't know what I'm doing here. No, you preach this. If anybody needs to hear this, they needed to hear it. And we need to hear it. Stop worrying about your life, what you will eat, what you will drink, nor about your body, what you will put on. Is not life more than food and the body more than clothing? Look at the birds of the air. They neither sow nor reap nor gather into barns, yet your heavenly Father feeds them. Are you not of more value than they? So you valued him. Now what's he doing? Valuing you. That's how it works. You give him invitation. You give him room to demonstrate himself in his life, in your life. Verse 27, which of you by worrying, or which of you by saying, what am I going to do? What am I going to do? What am I going to do? Can even add one inch to his stature. You take a short little kid and you bring him up here and you say, you want to be taller? Uh-huh. Okay, worry about it. Think hard about it. Close your eyes tight. Do the painful worship. See what happens. Is he going to grow? No. That's not how growth takes place. Which of you by worrying, which of you, you could say like this, how many of you by saying, what am I going to do? How can you actually, are you going to actually fix the problem just by going, what am I going to do? What am I going to do? What am I going to do? Does it fix the problem to stand there and go, I don't know what to do. 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 Does that fix it? No. 
And Jesus said, how are you going to fix this by worrying about it? And if you can't, stop it. If you can't fix it by worrying about it, stop worrying. Stop being consumed with worry over this. He said, why do you worry about clothing? Consider the lilies of the field, how they grow. They neither toil nor spin. And yet I say to you that even Solomon in all his glory was not arrayed like one of these. Now if God so clothes the grass of the field, which today is and tomorrow is thrown into the oven, will he not much more clothe you, O you of little faith? Camp out on that statement for a second. O you of little faith. Galatians chapter 5 says, In Christ Jesus neither circumcision nor uncircumcision availeth anything. Now, if you're not familiar with what those words mean, Pastor Michael will be at the front tonight to explain to you uh, what that is. Thank you. Yeah, okay. But for the sake of our message, do you know what it is? Tradition. That's how God instituted that in the life of Abraham. But Jesus came... And he replaced all of it. It was was a new kingdom. It was a new way of thinking. It was a new approach. And now, he says, there's no, uh, it, it avails nothing. Circumcision and uncircumcision, it doesn't avail anything or doesn't produce. Isn't that what we're talking about? Why isn't the word producing? Tradition won't produce. But he says this, for in Christ Jesus, faith works by love. So if neither circumcision nor uncircumcision avails anything, then just take it out of the Scripture and find out what it says. It just says this. It it started by saying, in Christ Jesus, neither circumcision nor uncircumcision avails anything. So say it like this. In Christ Jesus, faith works. Or I might say it like this. Faith in Christ Jesus works. It produces. It brings change. It brings the thing you've been desiring from the Lord and from the Word. In Christ Jesus, faith works. So don't ever be frustrated to the point again where you, start, you sit there and say, it's not working, it's not working, it's not working. If you're tempted to say that, you go to Galatians chapter 5 and you say, Lord, your Word says that faith in Jesus works. But don't leave off the rest. Faith works by love. Faith works when you know how much you're loved. Faith when you find out, did that do anything for you this morning just to hear how much you were loved? Yeah. Did you notice your faith grew in the middle of that? Yeah. You think, he'll do anything for me. When you find out how much you're loved, it takes the limitations off. And you don't, you, there, there's no more fear in going to God anymore to ask him. And you're not one of those people that says, well, I've never asked God for anything. And they wear that like it's some badge of honor. Like they've done him a favor that they've never asked him. And he's going, ask me. Ask me. I've, no, I've, no, I've never asked God for a thing. That's stupid. <laughs> ask him. Ask him. But you've got to go in faith. Yes. You have got to go in boldness of faith. And the only way to be bold, 1 John chapter 4, perfect love has cast out fear that we might have boldness in the day of judgment. Your boldness comes when you know how much you're loved. And Jesus said, why are you worrying about these things, O you of little faith? In other words, if you're worried about how it's going to come, then you're not convinced of how much you are loved. And that's true because it rhymes.
I'm just kidding. (laughs) But seriously, if you're worried about how it's going to come, then you are not meditating on how much you're loved. And Jesus said, if you don't know how much you're loved, he said, you've got little faith. Little faith. You know what's interesting about this whole thing? Is Mark chapter 4, Jesus preached the parable of the sower. And he went through everything we've gone over for the last 24 hours. Everything we've been talking about. He explained the whole thing to the disciples. He said, now hear the parable. And you go, you start reading to the end of Mark chapter 4. And you see them get into a boat on the same day, it said. And Jesus said, let's go to the other side. And the storm arose. And those guys went downstairs and found Jesus asleep at rest. Think about that. At rest. And they said... Lord, don't you care that we perish? So he got up, he rebuked the wind and the waves, and then what did he say to them? Why are you so fearful, O you of little faith? You of no faith. And I think sometimes we've preached that and communicated to people that Jesus expected them to go out and rebuke the storm, which perhaps... But the Lord spoke to me not long ago and he said, you know, the travesty was not that they didn't rebuke the storm. That, you know, standing up and screaming at a storm in itself is not faith. It's the belief in Jesus that my words carry his authority so I'll speak to this storm. That's the faith and the speaking is just the outworking of it. The speaking is just the demonstration of it. But in itself, it's not faith. It's not the entirety of faith. And I think we've preached this as though Jesus was mad at them for not getting up and, and yelling at the storm. And the Lord said the travesty was not that they didn't rebuke the storm. The travesty was they came down there and said, Jesus, don't you care? They didn't know how much they were loved. And if you don't know how much you're loved... You have no business standing up and screaming out a storm. Because if you're not convinced of how much he loves you, then you're not convinced he'll protect you from this thing. If you're not convinced how much he loves you, then you're not convinced that this thing is in his will. But when you know how much he loves you, I'll never forget the day I was getting out of, getting, getting out of an airplane at my grandfather's ministry. And we didn't go fly that day. We started to, but in Texas, storms creep up quick. And it got ugly out there quick. And I'll never forget the day that he and I were climbing out of that airplane and the clouds above his ministry turned green and getting low. And I will never forget the sound of the lion of the tribe of Judah (laughs) coming out of that man. And I watched him tear off across that tarmac pointing at that storm, screaming at it like it was a dog. You get off my property in the name of Jesus. This is blood bought. This belongs to Jesus. You'll do no harm here today. You will not destroy. You remove your... And he... I bet you that storm peed in its pants. I'm just saying. (laughs) I guarantee it. It might have rained a little right there. It startled me. But the confidence in his voice. That man knows how much he's loved. That man knows his covenant with God. And out of that came the authority of the voice of Jesus. 
The travesty wasn't that they didn't speak to the storm. The travesty was that they said, don't you care? Never, ever, ever question how much God cares for you. Never. Don't do it. Don't ever wonder if he cares. Never, ever, ever. Jesus goes on in this passage and says, seek first what? The kingdom. Seek the atmosphere of the kingdom. Because everything you need is in that atmosphere. And the atmosphere of the kingdom of God is so rich, not just with what you need spiritually, but what you need spiritually will produce and manifest naturally. That's what it's designed to do. Now, to wrap this up, go back to Matthew chapter 13. And the key to all of this is right here. He who receives seed on the good ground, excuse me, verse 22. He who receives seed among the thorns, again, say thorns, is he who hears the word. I'll say it like this. It's he who hears the word on God's will to provide and walks away wondering what he's going to do to meet his own need. It's he who hears the word on God's will to heal and walks away wondering what am I going to do to get healthy. It's he who hears the word on on God's love for the family, God's design for the marriage, and walks away going, what what am I going to do about this thing that's falling apart? He who heard the word received seed among thorns. Jesus called those statements thorns. What am I going to do is a thorn. How am I going to Make a living. I got to make a living is a thorn. What can I do to have that? I want that. My life's not complete without that, whatever that is. That's a thorn. I want you to put on the screen, don't turn there, but just look at this. Genesis chapter 3, and let's look at verse 17. God said to Adam, because you've heeded the voice of your wife and have eaten from the tree which I commanded you, saying you shall not eat of it, Cursed is the ground for your sake. In toil, everybody say toil. In toil, when Jesus was talking about those, the lilies of the field, he said, they don't even toil. They're clothed in beauty. Not even Solomon was as beautiful as they are. And they don't toil. They don't spin. They're not working for it. But when Adam fell, you might say this, he fell from grace. Didn't he? He fell from grace. That's what Jesus came back to do. Reinstitute grace. But because of it, cursed is the ground for your sake. In toil, you will eat of it all the days of your life. Next verse. Both thorns. Say it. Thorns and thistles. It shall bring forth. For you. The earth produces this. It starts as a seed. Everything is a seed, but it produces it naturally on its own. You don't plant thorn seed, do you? You know what would look good right here? Some thorns. No, you don't do that. The earth does that. It just produces that. It's what we would call natural. And when the earth, when Adam fell, the earth fell. 
And what the earth used to produce very naturally was beauty. What it produced naturally was gorgeous and it was healthy and it would nourish. But now it produces naturally thorns and thistles and you will eat the herb of the field. Look at verse 19. I want you to see this. In the sweat of your face, you will eat bread till you return to the ground. In the sweat of your face. In other words, God's saying, you fell from grace. Now if you want to eat, you'll have to work for it. Because of the thorns. If you want to eat bread, he said, it'll be by the sweat of your face. Don't you know Adam said, what sweat? What is that? What is toil? And he found out very quickly what it was. It's what your body produces when it's under pressure. It's what your body produces when it's having to work for what it wants. And because he fell, the earth began to naturally produce thorns. If you do not renew your mind to the Word of God, there is a natural way of thinking. And if you don't address it with the word, then it will grow in your life. And the natural way of thinking is this. What am I going to do? It's a thorn. Have you noticed that comes very naturally? Be very watchful over telling somebody, oh, just do what comes naturally. You don't know that guy. You don't know what comes naturally to that guy. That's, that's a dangerous statement. I was in flight school. And early on in my flight training, I had an instructor that was kind of impatient and rude. And I, there was some, we were in the plane flying, and he was asking me how I was going to enter the, the landing pattern. And I was, I was confused about it. And I said, I'm not sure what to do. And he said, Jeremy, just, just, just do what comes naturally here. I'm like, walking, <laughs> driving is what comes naturally. Be very watchful over what you say to somebody about doing what comes naturally because uh, Ephesians says that we by our nature were children of wrath. That's what came naturally to us. What comes naturally to you is this thought, what am I going to do? How am I going to make a living? Those are natural thoughts. And Jesus called them thorns. Here's what I'm saying to you. When man works for what he has and wears it as a crown, he doesn't realize that it's nothing but a crown of thorns. That's good. And when you're working, toiling, thinking that the pressure's on you to meet your need, and you wear that, you don't realize that that crown was already born for you. Somebody else already wore that crown. Somebody took that crown of thorns on them so you wouldn't have to. And the Lord said this to me. The thorns represent man's work. And God will not share his seed with the same ground as your effort and attempt to earn his blessing. This is mixture and it won't produce. That's right. 
the seed of grace cannot produce in the same ground as the seed of you working for it. The seed of grace and what it offers and what the word is capable of producing in your life will not yield and produce a harvest if you try to mix with it, what am I going to do? If you try to mix worry with that. You know, I told you when the kingdom invades another kingdom, the language changes. I'm going to tell you something. God does not speak worry. No habla worry, God says. <laughs> Me no speak worry. You go to him and worry, what am I going to do? 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 He doesn't even understand what you're saying. He doesn't speak that language. He speaks the language of faith by grace. That's the language God speaks. You've got to lay down working for it and begin resting in it. Because you can't mix them. They won't produce. Jesus said that the thorns choke out that seed and it becomes unfruitful. They won't mix. He won't share his ground with you working for it. Romans chapter 4 tells us that it's by grace and not by works. For if it were by works, then it would be debt. If your salvation was by your work, then God would have to come to you and say, wow, you did a really good job. I owe you salvation. If your healing was you working for it, then God would say, wow, impressive. You deserve some healing. Here's your payment. Listen, my friends, God is not in debt to you. He is not in debt to you. But that's what makes it so much more special. It's a gift. It's a gift. It's a gift. It's a gift. You cannot work for it and rest in it. They don't, they don't mix. Two different languages, two different systems, two different kingdoms. So everything that we've heard about the kind of ground that it takes to produce fruit, or everything we've heard about the kind of ground that won't produce, what do we know now about good ground? What do we know now about the kind of ground that it takes to produce what the Word of God is capable of producing? Number one, it's someone who will honor the Word as final authority. God can work in that kind of ground. Number two, it's some, this is good ground, someone with a revelation of how much they're loved. That's good ground that the Word can produce in. And number three, someone who will rest and allow the atmosphere of heaven to invade their world. Someone who will quit working for it and begin resting in it. Someone who will quit trying to measure up in the sight of God and recognize that Jesus, just as your pastor said earlier today, has measured you up. He's brought you up to his measure. That, with those simple things, you become good ground. You become the kind of ground that the word can produce in. Amen? Did you get anything out of this? Praise the Lord. Stand up on your feet.